Today's scripture reading is Philippians 2, 1 through 11. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is God's word. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Brent. Uh, Good morning, everybody. It's so good to see you today. Uh, I was talking to Brent before service, and he said, hey, uh, you can tell the people this morning that you've wanted a warm and welcoming environment. And so here it is. Uh, it's a warm environment today. Thank God we got the uh, AC on. It might take, it might not be cool until about m- noon. So just in time. Um, but I'm sure we can bear together today uh, in God's presence. Uh, obviously, we are in a series uh, in the book of Philippians. The book of Philippians. And uh, the name of the series is To Live as Christ. And really, that's pretty much what we're going after in this series. That to live is Christ. The function of living is only well, good, acceptable, satisfying in Christ. There's no other life outside of Christ, although sometimes we give in to the temptation that says, yes, there is. Uh, There's nothing outside of him. Christ is all. He is everything. And we wanted to spend some weeks specifically focusing on that truth. We try to do that every time we get together, every time we preach and minister God's word. It's all about Jesus. But we really wanted to lean into the book of Philippians this morning and uh, for these next few weeks. Um, This text that we're getting into today, the first 11 verses of Philippians chapter 2, is straight poetry. Straight poetry. And so if you're anything like me, you're probably tempted to sort of skim through that. Um, For those people in here who love Shakespeare, uh, Walt Whitman, Maya Angelou, grace to you, I just, my mind, my brain just doesn't operate very well in in that area. But poetry is a part of the New Testament, and honestly, it's all over the New Testament. And so God is inviting us. God's actually, I think, implicitly saying, hey, I want you to engage with me on a level that is beyond just your brain waves. I want you to go beyond something. I want you to go deeper than some cerebral interaction with me, which is, quite frankly, a really safe place for a lot of American evangelicals. We love to interact with God and the things of God with our brains. But when it comes to that feely stuff, when it comes to that subjective stuff, that doesn't make us feel very comfortable. I think we 
lack some power. We lack some control. We don't know where God is taking us. We feel sort of naked. We feel inept. We don't know what God's saying. Um, my first interaction with poetry, at least that I can remember, was like, you know, Beowulf in high school. And I was like, oh my God, how can I get through this? How can I, help me escape, Lord. I don't want to do this stuff. But the more that I've grown, even though I'm still not a poetry guy per se, the more that I've grown, the more that I've come to value how rich and how crucial it is that we dive into the poetry of the New Testament. Um, this is not a sermon about poetry. So please, you can get off Facebook now. Um, but this does beg the question, why does Paul use poetry? This Paul, this guy, incidentally, who has a rather bad rap, I think, and an unfair rap as being severe, too strong, um, idealistic, hopelessly idealistic, this is a man who wrote so much poetry in our New Testament. And the question is, why? With a brain the size of Paul's, why do you have to settle for the touchy-feely stuff of poetry? Why? Well, there's a few reasons. God wants us to feel him. He does. God wants to be felt. Because God is a person. He's a person. There is a texture to God. There is a heart to God. God is not just a theorem or an equation to be interacted with. God is so much more than that. God is living. God is thinking. God is feeling. And God wants us to be with him and he wants us to experience him. Truth is a person to be intimately known. I hope that every time you leave one of our gatherings even if we don't have the coolest gathering or the most amazing things in the world, I hope that when you leave our gathering, every single one of you, our goal is that you feel as though you had an intimate encounter with the Spirit of God. We want that every single week. Now, we can't control God. We can't make God happen. But that's what we're going for because God is a person and we must be with him. He calls us to be with him. Truth is a person to be intimately known, not just a set of facts to be grasped. But there's something deeper here. It's not only about feeling God. It's even more than sort of knowing God in the sense that we can say what's up and hi and feel him and experience him and interact with him. It's even deeper than that, I think. Because what the poetry of the New Testament helps us to do and all of the Bible is this. It helps us to change. It helps us to repent. I'll tease that out in just a second. The poetry of the New Testament gives us a heart-pounding vision for God. It gives us a vision to feel. It gives us a vision to experience. The poetry of the Word of God gives us a vision that will cause our hearts to come alive. Poetry simply makes the truth of God and the person of God compelling. Compelling. And this is coming from a guy who's not into poetry, remember? So just keep that in mind. 
I know some of you aren't into, again, Walt Whitman, Emily Dickinson, people like that, but poetry has power. I'll give you an example. Um, One of my favorite artists, maybe my favorite artist, is a guy named Andrew Peterson. If you follow me on social media, you know that about me. I've made that very clear. I love Andrew Peterson's music. It speaks to me. And on his latest album, The Burning Edge of Dawn, he does this song. It's the final song of the album, and it's called The Sower's Song. And what I love about The Sower's Song is it teases out some of the most beautiful truth that I personally, and you have also, some of you, have staked your life on. And that truth is this, is that we live in a world that is undermined by sin, the satanic, and brokenness. And one day, Jesus will appear. He will return. And when he does, he will make all things new. You heard Robert during the prayer after worship this morning refer to the new heavens and the new earth. We, those of us who are faithful in Christ Jesus will be resurrected and given new bodies and we with Jesus will not live in heaven on clouds for eternity. We will not. We will live on a new earth with real bodies, blood pumping through our veins, and we will never decay or see corruption. We will live forever under the gentle, perfect, loving rule of Jesus, and we will help him rule the new heavens and the new earth. We will live in a world that will never, ever again be beset by sin, temptation, sickness, diabetes, back trouble, cancer. That stuff will be gone, eradicated totally and completely forever, forever. That is our hope. That's what the Bible says that our hope is. But Andrew Peterson doesn't have a song where he says it that way. Jesus is coming back. He's going to make a new world. He's going to give you a new body. That just doesn't feel very compelling when you hear it all the time. And so what poetry does is it helps to take truth that sometimes gets some cobwebs, gets a little bit stale, and it brings a flashlight to it, and it exposes it to us again like we've seen it for the very first time. And so I'm going to read to you, I don't have it on the screen this morning because I just wanted you to listen and I wanted you to think, maybe close your eyes and just take this in. I'm going to read you a few lyrics from this song. I'm going to read it slowly and I hate it that I can't have the melody playing behind me or I can't sing as good as Andrew Peterson, but I think the words in and of themselves are good enough to stand alone here. Listen to this. Again, it's from the song, The Sower's Song. As the rain and the snow fall, down from the sky. And they don't return, but they water the earth and bring forth life, giving seed to the sower, bread for the hunger. So shall the word of the Lord be with a sound like thunder. And it will not return. The word of God, that snow, that rain, it will not return It will not return void. This is the good part. We, the community of saints, we shall be led in peace and go out with joy. And the hills before us, the hills before us will raise their voices 
and the trees of the field will clap their hands as the land rejoices. And instead of the thorn now, the cypress towers. Instead of the thorn now, the cypress towers. And instead of the briar, the myrtle blooms with a thousand flowers. And it will make a name, make a name for our God, a sign everlasting that will never be cut off. As the earth brings forth, sprouts from the seed, what is sown in the garden grows into a mighty tree. So the Lord plants justice, justice and praise to rise before the nations till the end of days. Those words get me every time. The imagery of the hills rejoicing, raising their voices, the trees clapping their hands. And I know this is terminology borrowed from the prophets, but it's worth repeating. The trees of the field clapping their hands and the land rejoicing. It just paints a picture of the deepest, most animal longing in our world, in our cosmos. Jesus, be with us. Jesus, heal us. Come be with us. We long for you. Every molecule longs for God. Some don't know it. Some of us don't know what we're longing for. We long for something outside of us to come in and possess us and change us and renew us and raise us up. And we turn to other things at times. But only will the Lord God be able to fill that hole, that longing inside of us. Only the Lord God. Those words get me. And so when we read Philippians 2, and I'm not even preaching all 11 verses today, just the first, actually the first four. And then as a uh, confession, we're going to say verses 5 through 11 together at the end for the challenge. But as I read through this this morning, don't just look for me to parse out an interpretation here. But why don't you join me and together let's lean into, go into God's word and let's be with him for a few minutes, would you? Let's be with him. Let's be with him. Just open your heart. Let's feel something. Paul wants us to feel truth in this. Philippians 2 verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, and this is very rhythmic, very poetic here. This could be set to music. You've got to keep this in mind. Paul is appealing to a deeper place than just the cerebral of, 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 of the people that he's writing to. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, how do I know that this is poetry here? Am I to believe that Paul wonders, actually wonders if there's actually comfort in love? Is Paul questioning that there's actually encouragement in Christ? Hmm, is there encouragement in Christ? Of course there is. Paul is inviting us to feel something. He's inviting us to respond to truth. What is, why is he saying these things? Why? If you go back up to chapter 1, verse, uh, I think it's 27, 
127. It says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's not saying save yourself here. He's not saying if you want Jesus in your life, live a certain way and then he will come to you. He's not saying that. He's saying for those of you who are in Christ, your response to his grace should be to live a life worthy of him. So he's calling the people of Philippi to live a life worthy of Jesus. What does he mean by that? Read your Bible more, pray more, go to church, stop doing this and that. What is he saying? Well, let's read on just for a moment. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that... He means something specific here. So that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, here it is, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So when when he says, I want you to live a life that's worthy of the gospel, he's not saying, Becky, read your Bible more. John, pray more. He's saying, church, strive side by side together. Be one in the gospel. This isn't an individualistic text. This is a corporate text. He is calling the church at Philippi that is rife with division. And two leaders that he addresses in chapter 4 who can't get along, and this is causing shockwaves in the church, this small church, he's calling these people to live lives worthy of the gospel. Whoa! Worthy of the gospel. And he's not talking about like heresy and bad teaching. He's talking about people who don't get along. The implication, when we are at odds, when we are not walking in forgiveness, when we are not approaching our relationships with civility and care and compassion and charity, we are literally preaching a false gospel with our lives. I'm not trying to be melodramatic. That's what's happening. Just let that sit on you for a minute. Don't wait for me to get to the next point. When we are tolerating division, bitterness, ugly feelings, when we are giving in to the temptation to assign evil motives to someone out of our insecurity, when we won't do what the scriptures say to do do our due diligence to restore and resurrect a broken relationship, when we are ugly with people, when we are uncharitable towards people, unthankful towards people, our lives are preaching a false gospel. We're preaching against Jesus. Paul says, live lives worthy of the gospel. And what does that look like? Strive side by side in the faith. Side by side. Side by side. And so, this is what leads him to poetically say these things in the first verse. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ. Now, I get it that he's speaking specifically to the church at Philippi. I get that. I get that. But the things that he lists here 
are clearly virtues that need to be cornerstone virtues in our community. And so what I'm going to do is just tease these four virtues out for a couple of moments. He says four things. First, he says, is there any encouragement in Christ? Well, the implication is pretty clear. He wants us to be people who encourage one another in Christ. That's what community should look like. Now, remember, this isn't just for you individually, although individually we all have to own this. He's saying, here's what the culture of the church of Jesus Christ should look like. Here's what your relationships and your interactions should look like in the church hallways or the school hallways. Here's what your interactions should look like on social media. Here's what your interactions should look like in your day-to-day interaction and in conversations. It should feel like this and look like this. Now remember, he's not just saying do something here. He's inviting us to feel something right now. So he says, if there is any encouragement in Christ. Whoa. What does that tell us about the way we should do life together? What does it mean to encourage one another in Christ? I was talking to a friend last night and he was telling me, he said, you know, the Lord spoke to me years ago and told me that I am to be an encourager. And he said, I've got some friends that are like really, have really impressive spiritual gifts, preachers and stuff. And he said, when God showed that to me, I was really disappointed because I thought encouraging, it's kind of soft. Encouraging? Because, you know, let's be honest. If we had to like put all the spiritual gifts on the table and say, okay, you can get rid of one of them, we'd probably say, yeah, get encouraging. I mean, we need prophecy. <laughs> we need miracles. We need preaching and teaching. But encouraging, I mean, that's, you know, if I don't encourage that person, somebody else will, right? And yet we have cultures of churches everywhere that lack intimacy, encouragement, love, compassion, charity, knowing one another. It's crazy, man. It's rife. It's it's systemic in the American church. But Paul says here, he leads off with this. He says, there's got to be encouragement in the church. There's got to be. You have got to be putting courage in each other. So that whatever fears hold you back from Jesus, you can get past those. You've got to have that in the church. You might preach good stuff, but if you don't have that, your church is broken. You've got to have that. So that, by implication, what does that mean? We've got to know each other's fears. We've got to know one another. We can't engage in this American, impersonal approach to church. It's got to be deeper than that. It's got to be deeper than that. We have to feel the responsibility that when we see someone who is broken or we even suspect that someone is hurting, we run to them. We become fascinated with them. We know them and we encourage them. That needs to be a common practice in the church of Jesus. A common practice common practice. He says this, if there is any comfort from love, implication, 
We need to love one another. And we need to love one another as such that we go beyond the stated sentiment. Love you, brother. Love you, sister. To showing that love by comforting one another. If I asked for a show of hands and everybody was totally honest, I would bet that most people in this room are carrying pain right now. Something hurts. Something is taking life from you. And what if? What if? We began to move into people's lives, move toward people, and get to know their stories. And all of a sudden, this strange person that this person didn't know, we become part of their story, and we are a comforting presence in their lives. What if we did that? What if we did that? What if we did that? What if you did that? Doesn't matter if anybody else does. What if you did that? Again, these are fundamental traits of the church. This is what makes us a church. Without this stuff, we're just kidding ourselves. Encouragement must be systemic in our church. Comfort must be common in our church. So rather than hearing someone's brokenness and preaching at them and trying to fix them, being with them and comforting them. Notice it didn't say preach at them and fix them. Comfort them. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. That's possible. But I really like this perspective. (laughs) Comfort that person. Comfort them. Comfort them. I know the temptation is to fix people because you can move on once you're done fixing them. And fixing people is so jacked up and so undermines the gospel at times because God's called us not to fix people. He's called us to be with people and love them. I'm not saying accept brokenness and sin and stuff like that. But so many times we race to try to get to the solution and we're showing people we don't want to be with you. You're a task. You're a chore. Once we get you fixed... Then we can move on and I don't have to face your brokenness and carry that around because that's too hard. God has called us to know one another as such that we suffer by carrying one another's brokenness. And that's why at the end of Philippians 1, Paul says that God did not only give you the gift or the stewardship of faith, he's given you the stewardship of suffering. And he says that generically to all Christians not just people who suffer for preaching the gospel. You are called to suffer. How are you called to suffer? Well, the context of this is very clear. By comforting and encouraging broken and banged up brothers and sisters in Jesus. By being together. By being relationally intelligent. By being present in people's pain. By being with them. Then this next one comes along. Man, this gets even more touchy-feely. Oh, boy, this is some tough stuff. Um, It's so much easier to watch football or basketball right now. Um, He says, if there's any participation in the Spirit, any participation in the Spirit. Why did he say it that way? 
Because poetry has a way of calling us to look at something differently. He didn't just say pray together. If he said pray together, here's what it would look like. We'd have a dinner together and we'd say, Dear Jesus, bless this food even though it's already blessed. Thank you for it and uh, yada, yada, yada. That's, That's what it would look like for us. Because our hearts are always drifting away from intimacy to callousness. So he says that one of the virtues and the cornerstones of the church is not that we just do spiritual exercises together, but we participate in the Spirit together. Together, we intimately push into the presence of God and we sit there together. Chris, what on earth does that look like? I'll tell you in a second. And I'm just asking you, to open your heart and let the weight of of the authority of God's Word sit on your shoulders. Participate in the Spirit together. If you have been serving God for a number of years and you are still petrified to pray for a meal in front of people, I'm not here to scold you this morning. I'm here to tell you, have courage and take a step out beyond yourself. It's time to grow. It's time to grow. It's time to mature. If you have been serving God for a number of years and you still dodge praise and worship on Sunday mornings because it's just not how you're wired, then you need to start getting here and opening your heart and singing because God wants to connect with you in your soul, not just in your head. God wants you to feel, and God wants to feel you. He wants to feel you. Be with Jesus together. Be with Jesus together. Be with Jesus together. It's interesting. There are times that I've, people have come to me and said, Chris, I, I really need you to speak into my life and counsel me about certain things. And I do that, but, and I believe in counseling. I really do. But there are times that I know it's appropriate that what this person needs is discipleship. The vast majority of the time we're talking about discipleship, a broken marriage, um, crazy stuff happening at work. It's about discipleship, living honorable lives, learning how to walk in forgiveness. It's about discipleship. I'm not trying to oversimplify it, um, but there are times that I invite people. I'm like, you know, and I've said, hey, uh, rather than counseling you and telling you how to do things, why don't you meet me at this park and why don't we just pray together for a little while, 15 minutes. Few people ever take me up on that. I know it's intense. Go pray with your pastor. He's like been theologically trained and, you know, but I promise you I'm not that much smarter than you. I'm really not. I'm really not. I'm just a regular dude trying to lead Jesus' church. And I'm not judging you. I, crummy prayers are actually pretty impressive to me because I wish I could pray that raw at times. Um, but you need to learn how to be with Jesus. And the best gift that I could give you as a pastor is to train you how to be with Jesus, not how to do things, how to be with Jesus. Participate in the Spirit together. And then he says this, is there, if there's any affection and sympathy, whoa, now that's where I draw the line. Affection? Yeah, affection. I've got a friend who pastors in Washington, D.C., and he says this, he says, Chris, the language of Washingtonians or Washingtonites or whatever they're called, the language of these people is this, snark. Everybody speaks snark really, really fluently. 
And it makes ministry really tough. Really tough. We like to call out the big, bad, ugly things that make ministry hard. Racism, crime, uh, all that kind of stuff. Consumerism, all that. All that. But that, that, those, that, that's low-hanging fruit. But when we really look into the church and look at what God wants to do among us, some of us really need to crucify snark. This irresistible draw towards communicating only with sarcasm. Raising up walls, defending yourself, living behind this fortress, one-upping others, all that kind of stuff. Dropping our guard and just being a part of the community, letting our guard down. We really need to embrace this. God wants us to experience His affection. And He wants us to experience it through His body. Primarily through his body. Why else would the scriptures all through the New Testament tell us over and over and over and over again, correct one another, challenge one another, encourage one another, lead one another, minister to one another, lay hands on one another? Because God wants to love us. He wants, to feel, he wants us to feel his affection. His affection. But many of us live behind walls. We won't drop our guard. I love saying to God sometimes, man, hey, man, I really, I really love you. Like, so it's just awesome to watch some of you guys, how you react to that. It's awesome. You know, or like I hug you and, and you're like, you know. <laughs> or the funniest one is when I like look, turn to face you and I'm looking at you in the eye and then you like the whole time in the conversation you're doing this, trying to keep me right here. And so I just follow you and I just go like this. And, and, I, you're, and I won't let you not face me. And then the whole time we're like in circles like this. And you're trying to get, you're trying to put me on that shoulder so you can look at me like this, you know. We have defenses that we don't even realize we have at times because we're in fear. We're afraid to be judged. We're afraid to be known. We're afraid to be loved. It's scary. I don't know why that is. I don't know what is in your background and your story that made you that way. And I want you to know as well, there's grace here. All the time you need to change, that's cool with me. I'll keep on going like this and doing that dance with you when we talk. And I'll be patient with you. But God wants us to know his affection and his sympathy. These should be core, fundamental to our church. If we preach really, really, really good stuff and have kick-butt programming and we fail in these areas, we are not doing well as a church. We're not doing well. We're not doing well. Our communication must be communion. And of course, that begs the question, well, Chris, how much of our conversation has to be touchy-feely, you know, sympathetic and all that kind of stuff? For some of us, it may need to be all of it for a while. It may need to be all of it. It's kind of like when you make that decision, I'm going to stop eating sweets. <laughs> and, um, and then a month later, you're going, well, I'll just do that on weekends. And then a month later, you're like, well, I'll do it once a day, you know. And then you're face down again. I heard this, somebody's going through this. Um, so, affection and sympathy. If these things really are real to you, then you must respond. If you believe Jesus' word, you must respond to this. If you have these things in Jesus, you must turn and do the same with one another. You must. You must. 
And so the scriptures go on to talk about in verses 2 through 4 that we should be uh, in, of the same mind, have the same love, full accord of one mind. Does that mean, Chris, that we should just agree to disagree? No. Doesn't mean that at all. It doesn't mean that we have to agree on politics. Doesn't mean that. Doesn't mean that. What it means is this, as one commentator said, and this is gorgeous. Bring your innermost lives into harmony with one another. Bring your innermost lives into harmony with one another. And as you do that, guess what's going to happen? The political differences that you have and other issues that divide us, they'll begin to fade. They'll begin to fade. Not that those issues aren't important. I'm not advocating being apolitical or withdrawing from whatever. All I'm saying is is that politics or any other issue should not have more power over our relationships than Jesus. Shouldn't. Shouldn't. What is this? What happens when we embrace this? Allowing our lives, our innermost lives, to become harmonized with one another. What happens? What happens is civility and understanding manifest in our relationships. Civility and understanding manifest. We become more kinder. We're not as mean-spirited with our barbed political comments. I know I'm plucking some low-hanging fruit right now, but that's pretty prominent. There's not a day that goes by that I don't see people who follow Jesus, claim to follow Jesus, say really ugly things on Facebook. It's so sad. It's so sad. It's mean-spirited. It's as though many of us believe that the winner of the next election actually determines our destiny as followers of Jesus. The faith and the trust that we put in the American political system more than Jesus is shocking. It is so saddening. It is so saddening. And I know nobody in this room ever intends to get on Facebook or Twitter or whatever and say something barbed about the opposite candidate and they're thinking about one of you. But when you make a mean-spirited comment and you've got friends who are sitting across the aisle, so to speak, and you say something like that, it wounds them, it alienates them, it pushes them away, and it dehumanizes them. You may not agree at the end of the day, but if you really are a follower of Jesus, when you have an opinion and express an opinion on hairy issues, you're going to do it with civility and charity. You don't have to be a butt to express your opinion. You don't have to. You don't have to. You don't have to. You can express your opinion with kindness and love. You don't have to be barbed. You don't have to be that. So I dare you, from now on, when you talk about politics, do it with kindness. I'm not saying don't say something on Facebook. Knock yourself out. I don't care. I'm not, you know, big brother trying to monitor what you do with your life. But I will challenge you, if you're a follower of Jesus, then be like Jesus. Look like him. Look back over your Facebook feed and read your political comments and ask yourself, was that kind? Was that charitable? What's the whole point anyway? Because I've never heard of somebody going to the legislator and saying, you know, Chris Bennett said something on Facebook that changed my mind. 
I had this position, and then he said it, and I'm like, whoa, I just, I saw the light. I saw the light. I'm going to be a lightning rod for the kingdom of Jesus for the rest of my candidates or whatever. Understanding and civility manifests when you adopt this poise. Because it's not about, again, agreeing with someone dishonestly. You may disagree on issues. That's okay. But it is about pushing those issues to the side and allowing your heart to become harmonized with that person's heart. Allow your heart to be harmonized with that person's heart. I once had a person tell me, about another, he's, this person said this, this person would consider himself to be a very mature follower of Jesus. And he said, I don't see how you can be a Christian and vote for that party. And I thought, wow. So we're justified by faith, not works, but also our political views. <laughs> and so I just asked him, I said, so do you actually have any, know anybody from that follows that party? Well, yeah, of course I know people. There's people in this church, and this person was a member here, isn't anymore. Uh, it wasn't because of this conversation, I don't think. Um, <laughs> but I said, no, like you really know people. Like you know why they vote the way they do. Like you know why. You know their position on things. Not just like you sit in the same pew with them, but you know them. He didn't answer me. He didn't answer me. It's easy to turn opponents into cartoons, make monsters out of them. But regardless of how you vote or what your views are on certain things, there's a story that fuels that behavior. And guys, we need to know each other's stories. We need to know our backgrounds. Some of us are shared backgrounds. And we need to grow in an empathy and an understanding for people who don't come from our neighborhood, our zip code, our socioeconomic group. We, don't, we need to know people like that and get in their shoes. We need our hearts to be harmonized with one another. Not for the purpose of changing their politics, so that we can live lives that will honor the gospel, and we can walk shoulder to shoulder, hand in hand, in promoting the gospel of Jesus, the faith of the saints. This is why God brought us together. And this is why Paul had to get poetic. Because he couldn't just start fussing at people. Hey, listen, y'all disagree, but get in the room and figure this out. He didn't say that. He called us beyond our brains to our feelers. Feel this. Feel people who are different than you, who don't think the way you think, who don't think the way you think. Bring your innermost lives into harmony. And so what I'd like to do to finish this message is for us together to quote together worshipfully and reverently verses 5 through 11. This is one of the oldest creeds in the Christian faith. This is who we are as followers of Jesus. And I want you to feel this. Because some of us are saying, you know, well, Chris, what about the ways that I've been wronged? What about the ways that where I lack vindication, where I've been done wrong? What about that? Well, 
this text addresses all that. This text addresses the community of believers who just don't see eye to eye on certain things. This text addresses that. And so if you would, would you just reverently and worshipfully read through these verses with me? Again, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. Let's begin. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God also, sorry, <laughs> therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Lord, I pray that this would be the centerpiece of our church. You, your glory. I pray, Jesus, that as we think about church, that the first thing that comes to mind won't be church services, but it will be encouragement, comfort, participation in the Spirit, and affection and sympathy. Let that be the default definition that pops up in our minds when we think about church. Harmonize our hearts, Jesus. Make us one. Let us be civil and kind in expressing opposing opinions. Let us not look at one another self-righteously, judging them for not being as, quote, enlightened as we are. But let us look through the eyes of grace, eyes that you look through every day when you see us, Lord, in our brokenness and in our sin and in our stubbornness. You love us. You love us. You forgive us. In Jesus' name, amen.